You may open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. We've been studying the dominion of the Holy God. That is His sovereignty, His right, His power, His authority to do as He will with His creatures. Amen. Right. Today I'd like to take that sovereignty of God and apply it to the human heart. And I don't mean just the hearts of wicked men, but the hearts of the righteous as well. God has the right to grant your heart mercy and compassion, to withhold it in some measure, or to harden your heart. He owes you nothing. He owes himself everything. Because he is the end of all things, and for all things, for him, all things were created. And I want you to be humbled before the God who can do deal with your heart as he wishes. We saw in Romans chapter 9, therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. And whom he will, he hardeneth. And you don't have the ability to stop his hand when he reaches forth to either show mercy or to harden, you have the responsibility to submit and humble yourself before him. And you can't even question his choice of whom and when he hardens or shows mercy. Because he's going to magnify himself among his creatures. He does not need us. He neither needs us righteous nor sinful. He does not need us. If you sin, you do nothing against the Most High God. If you are righteous, you add nothing to Him. Read the book of Job and figure that one out. It's plainly stated. You don't do a thing to Him. He isn't wringing His hands in heaven when we're foolish. He's just sitting back wondering how he wants to... He doesn't have to wonder because his eternal counsel has already taken care of his wondering. His wondering is how he's going to display his perfections in our foolishness. How long will he let us be foolish to manifest how foolish we are? How quickly will he recover us to manifest how gracious he is? It's all of God, but he controls your heart. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. And if you're here this morning, and you love the God that I'm preaching, and you love to sing His praise this morning, and you love His Word, and you love His saints, it is not because you are better than anyone else. It is by His mercy. Don't ever forget that. That I stand here this morning is entirely by the mercy of God. Amen. Man claims to have a free will. They don't think it's fair that God could mess with their heart. The doctrine today is that man is sovereign in his heart. They say that God created man as sovereign beings to control their own hearts. That they have their own free will to choose or to reject God or anything else. There is no sovereign in this universe, even with a small s, in comparison to the Most High God. He has not given man a sovereign right 
to his own heart. And I thank God for that. If he had left my heart sovereign or made my heart sovereign and left it that way, I would have chosen sin and destruction. Thankfully, praise his holy name, he saves us against our will. Isn't that glorious? Now, Billy Graham has written that God would never save a man against his own will. If God didn't save a man against his own will, we are all rushing straight into hell. What would hold us back? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Are you going to tell me that that heart is going to seek out God and understand Him and fear Him and obey Him? If He didn't overrule our hearts, we'd never be saved. We would all perish. Thankfully, He does save us against our will. They teach that God would not violate a man's will. I'm thankful He does violate my will. My will is depraved and would choose sin if God didn't hold it back. And if you this morning have fought a warfare against sin, and you know that you've had victories in your life against sin, and you have turned unto the Lord, it is because God turned you. It is because God delivered you. It is because God held you back. If you have not touched Sarah, it is because God kept you from touching her as he did Abimelech. It should not be confusing to a regenerated mind that's been taught. This is not a confusing subject. If you're thinking that if God controls my heart, I have no responsibility, you're playing the fool. And you shouldn't even be asking the question how to reconcile them. God has the right to your heart. And I'm thankful he does. And he also has revealed his will that we should be humbling ourselves and seeking him actively from our hearts. But also we've seen even in our Psalm 80 this morning that we better be begging him to turn our hearts. And I think it works together very well. I love having a God in heaven that is so merciful and he does hear the prayers of his people that if we'll pray for our hearts to be turned... The word of God says, they shall be turned. But if he withholds that turning, they'll not be turned. Man's will is corrupt ever since Adam fell. When Adam sinned, God had made a deal with Adam. I'm going to hold you responsible for the rest of the human race. That's going to come out of your loins and from Eve. She's the mother of all living. I'm going to make a deal with you, Adam. If you sin against me and rebel and eat the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, everyone that comes from you is going to be judged with a fallen, depraved nature. And we have that from Adam. It will not seek after God. God is not in any of his thoughts. We're all together corrupt. We've gone out of the way. We have sought our own way. The Lord better save us against our wills or will not be saved. Look in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Now, I'm going to say it one more time, and I may say it again, but I hope it's just one more time. Man today thinks that it's not fair for a God to be in control of his heart. He wants his own heart. He wants to make his own choices. But I want to tell you something. 
I believe, Proverbs 16, 1, and I don't spend very many seconds trying to explain it. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. God can leave your heart so that the preparations in it are utterly depraved, wicked, and foolish because he left it. He didn't have to put the utter depravity, wickedness, and foolishness in your heart because it's already full of it. But if he leaves you, that's what will automatically happen. If you have a little toy, a little wind-up toy that wants to go in some direction, and you set it in that direction, it will go in that direction. If you put a penny, if you tape a penny on its back, it will go in that direction more slowly. If you put your hand in front of it, you can stop it. But you are in absolute dominion over that stupid little toy. God is in absolute dominion over our hearts. He doesn't have to put any evil in there. Because we're rushing at fully wound up tension toward evil. And even when the preparations of the heart in man are horribly wicked, like Judas Iscariot, they were determined in the eternal counsel of God that that man would have those thoughts toward the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But Jesus would say in the same sentence, when he would say that offenses must come, because those offenses have been determined, yet woe unto that man by whom they come. And if you say in answer to that statement of mine, which is the the words of Jesus, how can he then find fault for who hath resisted his will? Those are the questions that Paul knows you're going to ask in your fleshly foolishness in Romans 9.19. And his answer is, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? We are the clay, he is the potter, we cannot even question the way we're made. Yes, I believe in the absolute predestination of a holy God. And I believe that the preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. I wouldn't be preaching to you this morning if it wasn't from the Lord. Because the preparations of my heart are from him. I wouldn't be here if he had left me to myself. Look at chapter 19, Proverbs 19 and verse 21. There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. A man can devise anything he wishes, but the only thing that's going to come out of that heart is the government of God. There's many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Look at chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. Verse 24. Man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? Amen. Chapter 21. Verse 30. There is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. I don't care what you have in your heart. You're not going to purpose anything and accomplish anything against the Lord. His counsel is going to stand. And we could, I can go on and on. I have lots of verses here to show you this morning because what I want to do, and the bottom line is what I want to get to this morning, is for us to add to our prayers more of an emphasis on God saving our hearts Amen. and the hearts of our children. Right. 
We don't do enough of it because we forget who's in charge of those hearts. We think that the child's in charge of their hearts, or we think we're in charge of our hearts, and therefore we think that by natural means, rules and limitations we can govern. Our hearts, children's hearts, brethren's hearts, our wives' hearts, we can't. Right. It's in the Lord's hands. Amen. And it's the best place for our hearts to be. Yep. Turn to 21.1. The book of Proverbs, chapter 21 and verse 1. Let's consider kings for a minute. Kings. The hearts gifted above all other hearts to make decisions for lots of men. I don't care what you've read about kings. In a day that despises authority, most of what you read about kings is evil. Most kings, by the decree of God, are fitted for their office and have enormous hearts. They can think and reason and make decisions about more things in a few minutes than you can in a lifetime. Amen. They're given large hearts, and that is the, what the word, how the Word of God describes them. Right. God gives men special gifts to be kings. We just live in a, a society of anarchy right. that doesn't like the thought of a king. A king is a great fixture. And it's a whole lot cheaper than our bureaucratic mess. He can live in absolute splendor, and it would cost us a fraction of what it takes for us to pay for one out of every six employees to be working for the federal government. Enough on that little rabbit trail. I love the thought of a king. Amen. Now, God didn't even have a king. He had judges. But they were treated like kings in some respects because they made the decisions and they didn't need any checks and balances. Checks and balances are a denial of God's authority, and they're a waste of money. Checks and balances have really helped our nation, haven't they? Indeed. It takes forever to get nothing done. Back to Kings. Proverbs 21 and verse 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. For those of you that have been in a plane, you've looked down from your window and seen that the rivers of water do not flow very straight. The rivers of water take bends here and all over the place. They want the water wanders all over. It'll be heading and it'll be heading east and the Lord will put up a barrier there and it'll turn around 180 degrees and head west. And a little while later, it's heading due south. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wants to. And so we see kings in the word of God, that some kings he hardens their heart. Some kings he opens their heart. Some kings he gives them a new heart so they can be a better king. But it's all in the government of God over the hearts of men. Look at Revelation 17.11. This is a doctrine that that is not appreciated. It's not taught. Men do not want the knowledge that their lives are in the hands of their Creator yet. That He has not created them with sovereign independence. They cannot stand that. Do you mean to say that if I chose someday that I wanted to be righteous and God hadn't purposed to show mercy toward me that I couldn't be righteous? 
some skeptic would say, and I would say, amen, and you're a fool for even mocking him that way. He owes you nothing. Revelation 17, 17. Try to, try to remember the last time you heard this text preached outside of this church. Revelation 17, 17. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. The Roman Empire degenerated into ten nations of Europe. God put in the hearts of the kings of those ten nations of Europe that they would agree. When was the last time ten kings got excited about agreeing together to give their kingdoms away? Would you please think about it for just a minute? When did ten kings conspire to give up their kingdoms? For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdoms unto their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. That little horn, the eleventh horn, the little horn that came up, the ten horns gave their kingdom to it so that the beast, the popes of Rome, ruled over the kingdoms of the earth for a thousand years. And where did that come from? The God that controls the king's heart and his hand as the rivers of water, he turns them whithersoever he will. Come over in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Do you think we're going to get a present, a president, or that we have a, we don't have a president that whose heart is not in the hand of the Lord? He turns that heart whithersoever he will. And therefore, when we pray for kings and for all that are in authority, do you know what we're addressing? We have more authority than Lockhart. We have more authority than any secretary of state, aides, speech writers, or any other, anyone else that has influence on our president. When we get down on our knees, one man, one man who gets down on his knees and believes and prays with faith to the God that controls the heart of kings, he can accomplish more than anything we could ever do right. in Washington, D.C. You can pay your lobbyists ever so much. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Amen. It's not under the control of the purse strings of the lobbyists. It's in the hand of the Lord. I come over to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Israel has demanded a king. They were not content to have judges. Jephthah and Gideon and Samuel and others were not good enough for them. They wanted a king so they could look like the rest of the nations of, in the area of Canaan. And so God prepares them a king. Saul is around eight feet tall. The Bible says that Saul was head and shoulders above every other man in Israel. Somewhere between seven and eight feet tall. Saul was a huge man. But Saul was a timid man. When they were going to crown Saul, they couldn't find him. Because he was too timid to go to his own coronation, he was hiding among the stuff. Right. That's the, those are the Bible words. Amen. You can go home and 
Yes, you can look up in your concordance stuff. I thought that was a word we used today. You forget that the 1611 Bible was, was written at the height of the English language. Saul was hiding among the stuff. Here's a seven foot, six inch man crawling around in the stuff so that he wouldn't be found because they wanted to make him king. So what does God do for a man like that? And praise his holy name. He can do things like this for you. Amen. If you'll just humble yourself before the God that controls our hearts. First Samuel chapter 10 and verse six. Here's the prophecy of what's going to happen. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shalt be turned into another man. Now, we're not talking about regeneration here. Don't get confused. Let's deal with context. We're not dealing with regeneration. We're dealing with a timid man, and he's supposed to lead a nation into battle? And he's hiding in the stuff? Look at verse 9. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel... God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When you are timid, or when you are facing something in your life that you don't know that you can handle, I want to tell you there's a God in heaven that can give you a new heart. Now, he may not give you a heart as dramatic as he did to Saul. Because Saul gets quite dramatic here. The first thing he does is he takes a yoke of oxen and hacks them into 12 pieces and FedExes them to all the tribes of Israel. Now that is an ugly man. When you open a FedEx envelope and you have the back quarter of an ox, and you know how long it took? FedEx was slow in those days. It took a while to get there. There were flies buzzing all around that package, and blood was dripping from three corners. But Saul knew that they needed to fight the Philistines, and and to make sure that he got the whole nation there, he sent a FedEx package to each tribe and said, if you don't show up with all your men, this is what your cattle are going to look like when I get done with you. Now something happened to Saul. He was hiding in the stuff, and now he's hacking up oxen. Don't ever give up, brethren. You want a new heart? You want God to give you strength in your heart? Then humble yourself and pray to the God that can give you strength in your heart. My heart and my flesh faileth. But God is the strength of my heart. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. I want to, what we're doing this morning is I just want to I want to lay witness after witness, and it would take me weeks. You do not know how many times in the Bible that God addresses his ability to change hearts and how many hearts he changed. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now what in the world is the king of Persia 
the mightiest empire on earth that has just conquered Babylon, worried about that little podunk city called Jerusalem, and why in the world is a pagan king standing up and putting in writing, remember, the Lord wants you to see all of what he wrote, and putting in writing that the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, therefore go up. And we get fearful about our government. Are you kidding me? One man on his knees can do more than any organization has ever done to alter the affairs of government. That is why we are told in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I've said it already, to pray for kings and for all their authority because we're praying to the God that controls their hearts in his hand as the rivers of water. Look at this. A pagan king decreeing that Jerusalem will be built, and guess who paid for it? That pagan, the pagan king and those that followed him. They paid for it. Yes, kings and queens shall be thy nursing fathers and nursing mothers according to the promise of God's word. Let's come to Nehemiah chapter 2. There's so many, I'm just, it's like almost picking any verse in the Bible. You're going to find God changing someone's heart. There's a testimony given three times in the book of Acts. Whose heart was changed in the book of Acts? Three times he gave his testimony in detail. Saul of Tarsus. What a change. What a change. By the grace of God. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 12. And I arose in the night. This is Nehemiah. He's back to Jerusalem and it's a mess. I and some few men with me. Neither told I any man what my God had put my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. Nehemiah came back to rebuild that city and its temple, and he came back because God had put something in his heart to do. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Look at the book of Haggai. Over toward the end of your Old Testaments, the book of Haggai. Can, does God stir up men and put things in their hearts in the way of zeal and righteousness? Right. What in the world caused Cyrus, a pagan king, to address the Lord God of heaven and to admit that he had authority now over the kingdoms of the earth because they'd been given to him by this God and that he should build a temple and build a city? What put that zeal in his heart to say that? The Lord stirred him up. What made Nehemiah want to go back and try to rebuild a city without fundings and without very many men? The Lord put it in his heart. We come to Haggai chapter 1, verse 14. Same city, same temple. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jezedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Amen. This is an, this passage, God comes to them and says, consider your ways. You're all poor, 
because you've chosen to build your houses rather than my house. Now consider your ways. They consider their ways and begin to humble themselves, and God stirs them up to enormous effort. And they get the job done. There is God requiring an an action out of us, requiring something in our lives that we don't know that we can do, that we're intimidated by it. That's why they were building their own houses. And yet at the same time, he can put in your heart the desire to do it. He put it in Zerubbabel's heart. He put it in Joshua's heart. And he put it in the heart of all the remnant that they would want to come together and work on the temple of the Lord. The Lord can put zeal in your hearts. I read this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If you are doing the good pleasure of God, God has worked that in you. I beg you, brethren, we need to do more praying in this church. Turn me, O God, and cause thy face to shine upon me, and we shall be saved. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We must always humble ourselves before the Lord and beg him to stir up our spirits to do his pleasure. Brethren, the Lord can also restrain the hearts of men. Let's look in our Bibles at Exodus 24. Exodus 24. Now we looked at a couple of examples of God stirring up the hearts of men. He gave Saul a new heart. He stirred up Cyrus. He stirred up Nehemiah. He stirred up Zerubbabel. He can restrain your heart. I have have the wrong chapter, so I'm just going to tell you what it says. It's not Exodus 24, 24, but it's it's close by. It's, It's the promise where God calls Israelites to send all their men to Jerusalem, or to wherever the tabernacle was, to worship him at the three principal feasts every year. And he tells them, even though you're leaving your women defenseless, and even though all your property is there fully exposed to marauding bands of robbers or to foreign nations, when you go and worship me, those other nations will not desire your wives, your houses, your livestock, your property. So that they could with impunity, go up to the house of the Lord and worship him, knowing that their property was safe. He promises them that. And so for hundreds of years, all the men could leave, and God would preserve their assets and their families by his sovereign power, by restraining the desire of those neighboring pagans. There is no wickedness that God cannot restrain. And he'll restrain it for the good of his people. So when you're praying for God to restrain wickedness in some way in your life or in our nation, trust him. He can do it. And he will do it for his people. The Lord restrains the hearts of men. Look at Psalm 21. Psalm 21. Psalm 21 and verse 11 I want to read to you. For they intended evil against thee. They imagined a mischievous device, which they are not able to perform. Remember, there are many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Amen. Here is a mischievous device in a man's, in, a, in their heart. They're intending evil. They were not able to perform it because God did not allow it. He, re, he is able to restrain a device in a human heart, 
even when it's evil, he can restrain it, which means when evil does break forth, it's because God has not restrained it. And it's his intent for that evil to occur, even though he is perfectly righteous. And those that perpetrate the evil are perfectly guilty. Look at Psalm 106. Psalm 106. Psalm 106 and verse 46, as it describes the history of Israel and how they were taken captive by foreign nations many times, it says, He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captives. Though Israel might have thought their situation was pretty bad at times, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. It wasn't as bad as it should have been. Because God was causing these foreign powers to show pity upon them. He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captives. Didn't Potiphar pity Joseph rather well? Didn't the keeper of the prison pity Joseph pretty well? Because we have these little words, the Lord was with him. And how was the Lord with him? He gave Potiphar complete trust in Joseph, a foreigner, a captive, a slave that he had bought with money. Now, wouldn't you ordinarily think that that'd be a dangerous man to put in charge of everything you own to the extent that you don't even check the books? The Lord's able to change a man's heart. And the Egyptian showed pity and grace and mercy toward Joseph. How about sin? The Lord can leave a man up to his own lusts. Look at the book of Judges, chapter 14. Judges, chapter 14. Oh, there's so many examples, brethren. There's hundreds of them. There's hundreds of them. We've seen that God controls the human heart. And that if the preparations of the heart in man is from the Lord, we've seen that God can give a new heart, that God can stir up a heart to do good things. God can restrain a heart from doing evil things. God can leave your heart to burst forth in its lusts. Look at Judges chapter 14. Who's under consideration here? What great and noble man do we have here? Samson. Samson. Judges 14 We read in the first few verses, that verse 1, that Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. He came up and got his mom and dad and said, I want her for my wife. And they tried to talk some sense into him that he ought to choose a woman from among Israel. Verse 4, but his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord, that he, that is the Lord, sought an occasion against the Philistines For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. The Lord pulled off the restraint of Samson so that Samson would want to go get a woman. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see all the evil circumstances that occurred to really irritate Samson. And the Lord used his irritation to do a little damage and give Israel some peace. But notice, it was of the Lord. What was of the Lord? Samson, an Israelite, a Nazarite from his mother's womb, chasing a Philistine woman. And did this man have a natural proclivity toward Philistine women? Over and over. Did God leave him at other times? Yes. And he ends up giving his entire strength away 
to Delilah, as we're all familiar. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 32. Second Chronicles chapter 32. This is in the years leading up to Cyrus, the king of Persia, rebuilding Jerusalem. But this is about one of Israel's kings. Second Chronicles chapter 32. This is one I've mentioned to you before. This is Hezekiah, a great king. Verse 31. Howbeit in the business. Second Chronicles 32, 31. If you were to read the other verses in this chapter, you would find out what a great king Hezekiah was. Right. Howbeit. Howbeit. In the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him to try him that he might know all that was in his heart. God left him. Horrifying words. God left him. God can leave any one of us. And when he leaves us, our heart will spring toward its natural proclivity, which is sin, and in this case, pride. If you were to read the rest of this chapter, are the mighty accomplishments of Hezekiah. The huge storehouses he built, the wealth he had. And he knew it was all from God, and God left him. And the Babylonians sent ambassadors saying, show us this wonder that's going on in your land. And he opened up the treasury doors of the temple of God and showed those ambassadors from Babylon everything that he had in pride. And as soon as they left, God said, you've shown them a motive for coming back and taking this nation to get all that wealth. He did not give God the glory and treat them like the pagans that they were. He took glory to himself on his great accomplishments and the accumulation of wealth, but it occurred because God left him. Brethren, God can leave us, and we better be praying that he won't leave us. And we better understand the seriousness of what happens when God does leave us. How about rebellion? What did God tell Moses at the burning bush that was going to happen when Moses went back into Egypt? He told him, I will harden the heart of Pharaoh. You can raise up every any verse that you want to about Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and I will show you that God hardened his heart. Right. By, by withdrawing grace from Pharaoh, because the Bible tells us plainly that Pharaoh was conceived, carried, delivered, and survived for one purpose, yep. the glory of God. Amen. And I will harden his heart. Before Moses ever left the burning bush, he was told what's going to happen to Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 21. What in the world, and I've said this before, but I want you to think, and we've got children here. What would cause a man who has just seen ten plagues in the land of Egypt of severity that devastated his land? The last one being, in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord passes through the land and kills the firstborn of every family, every animal family included. He has seen flies come until they use snow plows. He has seen frogs come until they use bulldozers to heap them up. Until the land stank. Because there were pyramids 
Yes, that's what happens when you push frogs into a pile. They form a pyramid of dead frogs. They were in his baking troughs. When he got his loaf of French bread to eat with his lasagna, there were frogs in his loaves. There were frogs everywhere. And the firstborn in every family was killed. They were so convinced that the hand of God was upon their nation for evil that they all went to the Israelites during the night, gave them all their assets, and said, please leave. Please leave. In the grief of their hearts because their oldest had been killed. Now what would cause a king of a nation like that to take his entire army to the edge of the Red Sea and see water heaped up on both sides very high, and to take his army down into that sea. What would cause an intelligent man, the most intelligent, best-bred man in the land of Egypt, to take his entire army down into the Red Sea? Why weren't there second thoughts? Because God had told Moses, what's going to happen when I open up the Red Sea? My people Israel are going to walk across on dry ground, but I'm going to get me honor. Do you like those words? I love those words. I could stop right now and sing the rest of the day, honor to the Most High God. I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and all his host. If you think the only way that God gets honor is when you're obeying him, you haven't read the Bible. When you sin, you don't do anything against the Most High. He will get honor, even upon Pharaoh. And Pharaoh went down to that Red Sea. What would you be thinking in the middle of the Red Sea when you turned back and realized that you were then in the middle, that you couldn't flee in neither direction was shorter? What would you be thinking? Would you be thinking about plague number three, maybe? Lice everywhere? Or would you be thinking of plague number seven? What plague would enter your mind? I would hope that I wouldn't have left the land of Egypt, that I'd have stayed in my room and called for Moses to come and lead me in prayer to the Most High God. But Pharaoh went down to that sea, and he went down to that sea for a reason, because God hardened his heart against all ordinary natural reasoning that even an animal knows better. Do you know what the horses would have done if God hadn't allowed them to go down in there with water heaped up on both sides? Try to get a horse to jump over water. You can look at the be- turn on the Olympics. It's a little late now, but if you turn on the Olympics, you will see the best bred, best trained horses in all the earth refusing to go over a water jump. Sometimes they go over, and sometimes after doing it 13 million times in practice, they'll just come up to the jump and plant those feet in, and the rider goes over the water. How do those horses handle pulling a chariot down in there with water heaped up on both sides? God took them down in there because I will get honor. And a man who should have known far better went down in there and they all washed up on the shore the next day. God hardens hearts, brethren. Don't ever forget it. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 2. God hardens men's hearts. And he has a right to do that. He does not owe us a soft heart at all times. We're sinners. 
He's God. We're clay. He's the potter. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 30. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into thy hand as appeareth this day. Here comes Israel out of Egypt. They've just wiped out the greatest nation on earth. They ask for permission to walk through a few nations' property to get to Canaan. But God wants to take one of those nations out of existence. He doesn't believe in worrying about species going extinct, okay? Or nations going extinct. Try to find much evidence of existing Hittites today. He hardened this king so that he would come against Israel in battle. And it says that God made his heart obstinate. God does not owe you making your heart soft. He made a heart obstinate so that he came against a, a nation that he knew had just defeated Egypt without losing a man and wiping out their entire armed forces. What would cause a man to do that? The Lord, he is the God. Amen. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Eli is the high priest of Israel, and Eli has two sons. His two sons were very wicked men. They would steal the best part of the sacrifices that came into the tabernacle for worship, and they would lay with the women that brought them. Eli rebuked his sons. Here are his words. Verse 25 of 1 Samuel 2. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. Those are small matters. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Sons, if you are doing something minor against your neighbor, that's one thing. But you're sinning against God. Who can entreat for you? I can't even entreat for you. Did they heed his warning? These are men that are over 30 years of age, that are the sons of Eli the high priest. Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. Why didn't they hearken? Because their sin had reached an extent that it was God's intent to slay them. Humble yourself before the Most High God. He does not owe the recovery of any. He does not owe us the obedience of any. This is the word of the Lord. God can send lies, brethren. He once asked in heaven, who wants to take Ahab to battle that I can kill him? First Kings chapter 22, a long chapter that tells a simple story. Who wants to get Ahab into battle so that I can kill him? And a, lie, a lying spirit came forth and said, I'll be a lying spirit. And I'll go give a lie to all of his prophets so that he'll think that he can go into battle and come home safely. And the Lord said, good idea. Go and prosper. And so then you can read the rest of the account, how Ahab believed his prophets, and he went into battle disguised. Because one prophet of God had said, you're not going to make it home today. And so he was going to prove that prophet of God wrong by going into battle disguised, so that the enemy would not seek after him as they would normally go after the king. Kill the king, the troops scatter. So disguised he goes into battle. And the Bible says that an enemy soldier drew a bow 
at a venture. That means, hey, I don't know who to aim at. Look at all those men over there. He flung an arrow into space, and that arrow came down between the joints of his armor, and Ahab was killed. But the point that we want from the whole story is, how did God get Ahab into battle that day? With a lying spirit. You say, that sounds like God. That sounds like God infused evil into Ahab's heart. Oh, no. God just, God brought the man of God that said, you're going to die today if you don't humble yourself. God brought the lying prophet with the lying spirit. And guess who believed the lie? Ahab did, because the prophet of God explains to us, Ahab preferred lies. And so if you prefer lies, guess what you'll get? That is when God turns a man over to his own heart's lust. And it's a scary thing when he does it. In light of that, look at Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Verse 1, it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. He tempted him. This is not a temptation of infusing anything into Abraham's heart. All it is is a request that would be very difficult to hear and obey. And God will bring temptations like that along our way where we will have opportunities to sin But it is our job to hate those opportunities of sin and to keep ourselves from them. But if the Lord sees a tendency on our part to play with sin, he will bring those temptations our way. He will give you your heart's desire, and it's one of his worst judgments. He does not have to infuse evil in a heart. Do you know how we oppose that kind of judgment from God the best? We pray a simple prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, lead me not, lead us not, into temptation. Jesus was led into temptation immediately after his baptism for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by Satan personally. We wouldn't have handled it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How often do you make that a part of your praying? Or are you praying for increase in your business? better grades for your children, and to find a new house. God, help us. All three requests are ridiculous to be in the same prayer with delivering us from temptation and turning us, O God, and causing thy face to shine upon us that we might be saved. Who cares where you live or how much you're making if God is at your right hand and holds your heart from falling? In Luke 22, brethren, I know know that you know this. There's two men in Luke 22. Satan wanted both of them. Do you know who the two men are? Judas and Simon Peter. Satan came to Jesus Christ and asked for Simon Peter. The Bible tells us that. Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But brethren, there's a God in heaven, and he controls the hearts of all men. And one way that he controls the hearts of all men is that he can protect your heart from Satan. And Jesus said, I have prayed for thee, 
that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Peter failed. In denying Jesus Christ. But his faith didn't fail. Because when he turned and looked at Jesus. And realized the guilt of the sin that he had just committed. He went out and wept bitterly. And brethren, he was the first runner. To go, first runner to go inside that tomb to check out the location of his Savior. Right. But there's another man in Luke 22, and Satan wanted him also. But Jesus didn't pray for him. Right. Jesus just said it would be better for that man that he had not been born. You might say to me, that doesn't sound fair that God would con- allow a soul to come into existence, that it, would, that it would have been better that that soul had never come into existence or never been born. You don't have the right to ask such a question. Right. He is the potter and we are the clay. Amen. Do, you know the, do you know what we should be doing more of our time? Is begging that potter for mercy. Right. But instead we want things. And do you know what he's given this country? Things. Yep. Prosperity until they are so fat they've all forgotten him. And when the day of judgment comes, there should be no limit on what this nation gets for having turned their back on him, and they don't care about him truly being their God. They just want the things that he can give. Look at Psalm 138. Psalm 138. The Lord can protect your heart. Does your heart get weak sometimes? It doesn't even need Satan around it for it to get weak. Psalm 138 and verse 3. In the day when I cried, thou answeredest me, and strengthenedst me with strength in my heart. Are there times where you feel like your heart is about to fail? Cry unto the Lord. He can give strength to your heart. He will give strength to your heart, and we shall be saved. My flesh and my heart faileth. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In the day when I cried, thou answeredest me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. God is able to take care of your heart. I want you to come over to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. How much time in a week do you spend making sure your children have three squares? How much time in a week do you work at helping your children with their homework that they get some sort of a degree? How hard do you work in order to provide homes and cars and clothes and toys so your children will not be ashamed? Out of the 168 hours of a week, do you know how much we're consumed with those three things? Then we get consumed with having what the world today calls quality time with Johnny. You know, playing checkers, duck, duck, goose, capture the flag, and reading nursery rhymes. What about this time? How much time did you spend in the last year? How much time did I spend in the last year doing this? Job 1, verse 4, and we've got... The man that God brags about. So it must say quite a bit for him. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day. 
and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. They had huge birthday parties. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. He rose up early in the morning. He offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all, just with the thought that maybe they had cursed God in their hearts. And this, thus, this is, this is what Job did continually. Right. Is that our priority? That was Job's priority. To pray for God to have mercy upon their hearts. And to forgive them, not even an outward sin, that maybe in their heart they had forsaken God. And so Job came to the Lord and begged for mercy for his children. Do we, in, do we pray with an intercessory prayer for our children, begging God for mercy upon them. We need to do more of it. Amen. This world has seduced us away into worrying about the things that don't matter compared to the heart. I said I spoke to you very personally a few weeks ago about the difficulty of balancing learning God's Word as a minister, learning God's Word, memorizing it, preparing notes, and reasoning with men. I spoke to you about wanting to persuade men to the truth. And the Bible tells me what I need to do. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be apt to teach, patient, gentle, and meekness in instructing those that oppose themselves. I have a list of how I'm supposed to approach men. Second Timothy chapter 2. However... Later in that chapter, and I told this to you, it says, If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Do you know what that means? No matter how hard the minister's labors, no matter how sincere he is, no matter how eloquent, no matter how persuasive, no matter how thorough his outlines are, it's up to God to give repentance to a human heart. Amen. Now, how's that for taking away the power from the preacher? It's up to God to give repentance. Right. It's, it's the act of God. Do you know what that means? Praying is more important than preaching. Do you know what I get excited about? This subject to me can be brought down to this, and I've already told you this morning, but I'll tell it to you in a different way. This God that holds my heart, He allows me to wrestle with Him. And he allows me to wrestle with him in a way that I can win. That is too good to be true. Amen. Jacob wrestled with him and prevailed. He said, I will not let thee go until you bless me. And even though he made that prayer and the Lord touched his thigh so that his thigh was out of joint, which made it look like things were going from bad to worse, he said, I've changed your name to Israel because it's a prince. You have power with God. We can wrestle with the Most High God that controls our hearts. And do you know what the bottom line of that is? You can affect your heart by sovereign mercy. 
Jacob prayed for his brother's heart. Jacob prayed for Esau's heart because all he knew that Esau was coming with 400 armed men. And all he knew is the last time he had heard from Esau was, you are dead meat, brother. You went and lied to our father and stole the birthright from me. And all he knew is 400 men were coming. And brethren, when a man prays and wrestles with God, do you know what Esau did when he met Jacob? He fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept together. I love a God like that. And I love a God that will humble himself down and let us wrestle with him and prevail. Turn to Psalm 85. I want to close with a number of verses from Psalms. I'll move through them quickly. I want you to see how the Psalms were given to us that when our hearts are weak and when we truly desire to be more godly, we will crave the Psalms and pray like the Psalms. Psalm 85 and verse 6. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? That's a prayer. That's how we ought to pray. Please revive us again, that we may rejoice in thee. That sounds like David in Psalm 51 after his great sin. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. It's a prayer. But here it's the word revival is used. Wilt thou not revive us again? Pray for a personal revival. God changes hearts. And God can change your own heart. And I've brought the whole... I don't really care about kings. I don't really care about kings. I don't really care about the king of Persia. I, I read it. I bless God. I, I love the, the, the record that he's given. But what I care about is your pastor. And what I care about is my pastor. Is that we will ask God to revive our hearts. Because he holds our hearts in his hand. And the preparations of the heart in man is from the Lord. But he lets us pray for that. Amen. He, wants to, he wants us to acknowledge that we do not own our hearts, that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and that we have to come for Him for grace in our hearts. And when we do that, He will revive us and give us strength in our heart. That's what I want for this church. It's what I want for me. That's Psalm 85, verse 6. Look at Psalm 119. 119. You don't have enough fingers on your hands to number... The times that the word quick and quicken is used in Psalm 119. And I'm not going to lay them all on you, but I want to give you a couple. Psalm 119, verse 36. This doesn't even have the word quicken, but look what it says. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. Can God turn a human heart away from covetousness, which is the sin of our nation, to the word of God? Yes, he can. How do we get him to do it? By going to work tomorrow? By praying for God to bless us on our job? No, by asking God to incline our heart to his testimonies and not to covetousness. Bless his name. I'm so comforted by these words of David, a man after God's own heart. And if you read through this, it's prayer after prayer after prayer for God to mold his heart. After the ways of God. Look at verse 88. Psalm 119, verse 88. Quicken me after thy loving kindness. 
so shall I keep the testimony of thy mouth. How are we going to keep God's commandments? By asking God to quicken us, not to regenerate us, but to make our hearts alive toward the word of God. Are there times in your life where the word of God's been a closed dead book to you? You haven't read it. When you did read it, you fell asleep and you didn't really have a desire for it. Do you know what you can do? You can hear me right now and you can pray. You can get down and pray and say, quicken me after thy loving kindness because he does love us. So shall I keep the testimony of thy mouth. Verse 107. I am afflicted very much. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word. Make me alive and use your word to do it. Change my heart. Flip over to Psalm 143. Psalm 143. Do you know how dependent we are on God when we tell Him that even our heart is in His hand? That is the absolute faith. That is absolute faith. Even my heart I cannot control. It is yours. But when we're praying, He knows that we're trying to control it. When we pray unto him and ask him to strengthen our heart, he sees the effort of our heart, and he gives us strength in our heart. Psalm 143 and verse 11, Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. For thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. The Lord can change your heart, and the Lord can deliver your soul from trouble. Let's turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. What happens to men that wait upon the Lord? They renew their strength. They mount up with wings like eagles. They run and, are, and they don't get faint. Right. And how do they do that? They wait in the Lord. Amen. And He strengthens their heart and He gives them strength to fly away. Amen. Blessed be His name. Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That is the prayerful, submissive attitude of a true child of God, waiting on the Lord. We just don't go to the Lord in prayer and go running out like a banshee. We pray and beg God and wait on the Lord. And do you know what he'll do if you'll wait? Because waiting means that you are not putting any confidence at all in your flesh. Waiting means that you are going to wait until he gives you strength. And what what does it say? He'll strengthen you in your heart. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That is a great recipe for success. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Look at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Remember going into a candy store? Your dad said you can have one piece. You looked through the glass, and there was a hundred options. You didn't know which to pick? That's what it's like on this subject. I'm out of time, and I'm reaching in. And I've just got a couple left. I just want you to see that the prayer that I want us praying, because I want great grace upon us all, is for us to be seeking the Lord for our own hearts and for the hearts of one another. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 18. 
I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Here's the prayer of a man. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised. As a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, that's us. A bullock that doesn't like to humble himself beneath the yoke of God. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. If you want two verses to read and consider God's dealings with His saints, those are the two verses. He chastises us to get our attention. Once we are chastised, we pray to be turned, and He turns us. After we're turned, we repent. After we repent, we're instructed. And after we're instructed, we're ashamed. We were ever like a bullock that wouldn't humble itself to the yoke. That's Jeremiah 31, 18 and 19. Where do you want to be in that process? I want to be at the end of it, ashamed of all previous conduct and begging for Him to turn me even more. Brother, when the Lord comes to you and you know in your heart that He has made you think of Him again, that you're not seeking Him with your whole heart, I beg you, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor Him speaking to you in your heart. There's horrifying prophecies in the Bible that I'm not going to read. If you want to read them, go to Proverbs chapter 1. The last one-third of that chapter is about the fact that when God calls and we do not heed His call, He can withdraw Himself from ever calling you again and and He will bring calamities into your life. And when you cry unto Him, He will not hear and will laugh at you. I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as a desolation. When the Lord is dealing with your heart, there is no time for work. You know, we take a sick day for our foolish bodies. When was the last time someone took a sick day for his soul? And went and spent the time in prayer and fasting, asking God to fill his heart with greater love for God and to turn him that he might be turned and to cause His face to shine upon me, that I might know Thy presence more than ever before, and I shall be saved. I sound twisted? That's the spiritual lesson of the Bible for us today. There's nothing outside these walls that are even going to come close to what I said. On your way home, you're going to see signs about contemporary worship services. There's no spiritually minded people left in the earth that would take a day off for fasting and prayer to seek the Lord and to have their hearts turned by the God of heaven. Brethren, I believe in the absolute predestination of the holy God and that he is the sovereign dominion. He is the sovereign God of this universe and has dominion over all of his creatures. And he holds our hearts in his hand so that the preparation of the heart and man is of the Lord. And if sin bursts forth and the Lord has withdrawn his presence from a heart, and that's why it occurs. 
Yes, we're all responsible. That should go without saying because the word of God tells us how we're to live. But we have a heart that will not live, let us live that way unless God has mercy upon us. I hope that we'll go out of here this day and yes, this afternoon, given that what we have facing us and we will pray for God to turn us and to turn one another and cause his face to shine upon us and we shall be saved. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.